0: Creatures are weary, the singers are tired, the church as we know it is losing its body. It would be worth it. Just one more soul Were to walk down the aisle It would be worth every struggle It would be worth every mile A lifetime of labor Is still worth it all If it rescues Just one more soul Cause just one more soul Were to walk down the aisle, it would be worth every struggle, it would be worth every mile. A lifetime of labor is still worth it all, if it rescues just one more soul. A lifetime of labor is still worth it all. Just one more soul. I stand, my grace complete. Made flawless through Your precious.
1: Amen. God's unfailing love. How could we ever be grateful enough for that? Amen. All right, let's turn over to um, the book of Psalm to start with. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. We'll find that. And then um, I think we'll have you turn to Acts chapter 16 as well. So Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, and then you can kind of maybe find your way over to the book of Acts chapter 16. I want to kick off um, this final uh, message of the series uh, with the text verse that we've been using throughout. And that is in this book of Psalm, chapter 16, verse 11. And uh, there we find the Bible tells us, Thou wilt shew me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And again, the emphasis being there in that first portion, Thou wilt shew me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. And then I want you to look over at the book of Acts today as we kind of kick things off this morning for the lesson or message and we kind of focus today on uh, just this issue of service today. We've been talking a little bit and we'll discuss just a little bit more about the fact of what and how do we arrive at joy, four steps to joy and again I'm sure some others could break it down a little bit more detailed but we've made it as simple as we could. And so today, we're going to end with that fourth one, service. And so I want to start, first of all, with the book of Acts, chapter 16, though. And again, it seems like every week we've kicked off with a kind of a portion of Scripture, an illustration, or a a, a picture of what we're trying to express and say. Here in Acts, chapter 16, we begin reading in verse 22. And the Bible says, "...and the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ran off their clothes." And commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Man, we have this uh, passage here telling us about Paul now, and it's talking about him, and of course we know Silas is with him, and boy, they have been preaching and proclaiming the Word of God. They've been telling about how Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day. And now we find here as a result of their faithfulness, as a result of their obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, we find them now in a position where the magistrates, the Bible says, rent off their clothes, stripped them down, and then they went ahead and commanded them to be beaten. After they beat them and they, they, they put many stripes on them, This wasn't just a smack or two. This wasn't just a little bit of a whooping. No, they took it on the chin and they took it everywhere else, so to speak. I mean, it was a bad situation. And then they take them and cast them into the inner prison and they put them in stocks. It's not enough that they'd beat them. It's not enough that they'd humiliated them. It's not enough that they'd stripped them bare in front of all. No, now they're going to go ahead and throw them into the prison and put them in stocks. The Bible goes on to say, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Wow. I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't have responded quite in like manner. I'm not so sure that I'd have been very anxious to sing a praise to God. I don't know that I'd have been as anxious to lift up and magnify the name of the Lord. I'm not sure that I'd have been in the position that they were at that point, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. The fact is, I'd probably be whining and crying like a little baby. I'd be looking at God and going, why me, God? Why me? How's come I'm doing your work and you allow this to happen to me? I probably would have responded that way. I'd like to believe I wouldn't, but... Then again, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that they didn't. What I know is how they did respond. What I know is how God empowered them and enabled them and by His grace permitted them to be able to sing praises to God, able to still lift up the name of the Lord in the midst of that hurt and heartache. We talk about joy today in our culture and our world and we have such a skewed view of what joy is. It's all based on our circumstances in most cases, but that is not obviously what brought joy to the heart and to the lives and to the lips of these men in that prison that day. It was obviously much more than that, it was something that was derived from inside, not something derived from the outside. And we've been addressing and we've been talking much about joy over the last few weeks. And our passage says, Thou wilt shew me the path of life in Thy presence is fullness of joy. And so the first week we started by saying, listen, you know, if we want to have a lasting joy in our life, then it starts with salvation. And understanding that lasting joy is a byproduct of the very presence and personal relationship that we have with God, we must first go to Calvary where we can meet the Master. And there we cry out to God and we beg God for His saving grace. And he listens and he hears and he does exactly what we ask. He washes away our sin through the blood of his precious son. He saves our sin sick soul from the awful penalty of sin and a lifetime of misery. He includes us in the family of God. He invites us into his home. He provides us with an inheritance and he keeps us by his very power. And at this point, a relationship with the creator of the universe has begun. The source of all joy is now within reach. And we said, number two, we're going to experience a lasting joy, then we're going to need surrender in our life. It's not enough to merely have Christ as our Savior. We need to be surrendered. What that means is that we must run up the white flag. We have to give ourselves both mind and body to Him. Our plans, our goals, our dreams, and our lives must be placed in His hands. And we must permit Him to to. to Operate in our life, fulfilling His plans and His goals and His future for us. Why does it seem so difficult? Well, we said that many times, if we'd be honest with ourselves, we struggle to trust God with our futures and with our lives. Because sometimes we're fearful that what we do have, although it may not fully satisfy, although it's not the kind of joy that we would prefer, although it doesn't measure up to the expectation that maybe we had imagined early on in our Christian experience, the fact is is that we're afraid of losing what we do have for fear that it will never even measure up to what God can give. If we were honest, we may have to admit that. But we must surrender. If we're ever going to expect to enjoy the joy that God intended for us, we have to be willing to surrender. And the truth is we should gladly surrender. Why? Because that's what Christ deserves from us after all that he's done on our behalf. See, there can't be any constant or continuing joy in our lives when we're constantly at battle with the Lord over property rights. So we said we need salvation. We need Surrender, but also we need to be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. We learned that from the very moment that we were saved or that we became the children of God, that literally the Holy Spirit of God indwelled us. He took up residency in our lives, in our bodies. I mean, this is not some quasi-theory. It's not some crazy, mystical thing. It's legit. I mean, God himself literally lives inside of... This house. And he lives inside of you today. Right, amen. He's not just an electrical pulse. He's not just some kind of, some, some I don't know, spiritual feeling. No, he is li- literally living in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, goes on to say that, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And we noted right off the bat that the, the, the manifestation of the Spirit in our life will produce this love and joy. So therefore, if we are not yielded to the Spirit, if we're not surrendered to the Spirit, if you will, if we're not filled with the Spirit and allowing Him to have control of our life, our actions, our mind, our thoughts, and every aspect of our being, then joy will not be manifest in our life. So, it's not enough simply to be saved. And again, to surrender to God and say, My body is yours is one thing. But it's another thing to say, I want spirit filled. I want to be led and controlled by the Spirit of God. I want Him to have His will and way within my heart, not just on the outside. So many people are busy doing with their hands, but their heart has never been affected. So, if we're truly going to experience a lasting joy, we need salvation. Because it brings the source of all joy within grasp and reach. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then we must surrender and run up the white flag and say, hey, not my will but thine be done. And then we must say, I now want to be controlled every thought, every thing, every aspect of my life by you. And we yield ourselves to the spirit of God. And then we come today to the fourth aspect. Service. How does our service produce joy then? And may I say it's important to recognize and realize this truth, that until you are saved, until you are surrendered, and until you are spirit-filled, service cannot nor will it ever produce lasting joy. Someone says, well, I think that just serving any time is joyful, but it's not necessarily lasting. I mean, how many people in the house of God today, how many people that are within the context of even my, my, my earshot, how many people have found themselves burdened down by the ministry, burdened down by service instead of blessed by it? How many have found themselves at a place in their life, spiritually speaking, where they said, man, it's just tough getting back and forth to church. It's just difficult knocking on a door. It's just hard to have to prepare for a Sunday school lesson. It's just really a burden sometimes to serve Jesus Christ. I sometimes would prefer not to have this burden on me of serving Jesus. Well, why is that? Because we're doing it in our flesh and not the Spirit. Because we're trying to do it in our own effort and with our own mind and our own intellect and we're trying to do it in our own energy when instead in reality it has to be done in the presence and the power and through the humility of the servant of God surrendering wholly and completely to Christ and saying your will not mine and do it through me. I'm just an instrument in your hand Lord. And sometimes we just flat get burned out because we're looking for someone to tell us how wonderful we are and how important we are And how necessary and needful we are, instead of just simply saying, Lord, I'm nothing. I'm a big zero. You're everything. And anything that I've ever done has never been me anyway. It's always been you. Boy, it begins with salvation. I'm telling you, if you do not have the source of joy within, then you cannot possibly enjoy lasting joy. And if you haven't surrendered to him, then I promise you, you're doing it in the flesh. And even though you say you surrender to him, but you're not spirit filled and you're allowing sin to rule and reign in your life, and you're not surrendered and committed and yielded to the spirit of God and his leadership in your life, then my friend, you're still doing it in your own power. And I'm telling you, serving people and serving others and serving God is not that great a joy when it's all you doing it. Why is it that people check out after a year or two of service? Why is it that they finally burn out? Why is it that they get fed up with others? Why is it that they finally throw their hands in the air and say, I'm doing everything I can to be a blessing to others, but they don't seem to get it. They don't want me to help them. It's all about me doing something for them. They never do anything in return. It's because you've been doing it in your flesh. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't feel that way when he headed to Calvary? Our service produces joy. How's that happen? I'm going to give you three basic ways, and I have to hurry quickly today. Let me give you three ways or three things about that. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. We need you. Bless us now, we pray today. And Lord, if there be any without Jesus Christ, may they come to Christ and be saved today. Lord, if they have been saved, Lord, may we come to the place where we recognize a need, whether it's surrender or whether it's being spirit-filled, or whether it's just simply getting involved in serving you. But Lord, help us, Father, to experience this lasting joy that you'd have for us. A joy, Father, that is not about circumstance. It's about you, Jesus Christ. Well, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, how does our service produce joy? Well, first, our service pleases the Master. It pleases the Master. Our service pleases the Master. Now, we'll get to how it affects the joy aspect, but first of all, our service pleases the Master. Now, what does it mean to serve the Lord then? Well, again, if we're to please the Master. So here's how it works, all right? Turn of you to Revelation 4.11, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background, and then I want to help you understand and see something from the Bible that's extremely important, very valuable, and necessary if you and I ever intend to experience lasting joy in our lives and in our our walk with Christ. Notice what it says again in Revelation 4.11. I say again because it was just the other night that I turned to this very quickly, but tonight we're going to look at it for a moment, not even as long as we did the other night probably, but Revelation 4.11. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. Now hold on. Do you believe that He created all things? I mean, if you believe He created all things, then we're talking about the Lord that you and I claim to possess, that you and I claim to have within us. Notice, he says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. He's worthy, yes indeed. For thou hast created all things. Why is he worthy to receive glory, honor and power? Because he created all things. They're his to to, to enjoy. He created them. Therefore, everything that he created ought to look up to him and give him glory and honor and say, You got all the power. For thou hast created all things. Watch this. And for thy pleasure, they are and were created. See, God says everything that he created was for his pleasure. And therefore, everything that he created, he would have them to glorify and honor and ultimately extend the power to him and say, it's all you. It's all about you. Now, listen, the, what we see here in the passage is that, that it's for his pleasure that we were created then. We're created for God's pleasure. Do you know you weren't created for your spouse? You weren't created for your children? You weren't created intentionally for everything else? You were created for God and His pleasure. All the rest of that stuff is opportunity for you to please Him. But that's not your purpose for existing. Your purpose for existing as a man is not to be a good provider for your family. It's to please and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you were placed on earth. That's why, wife, you were placed on earth. Not to be a good mama, although you ought to be. The fact is is that you were placed on earth to bring glory and honor to him. To ultimately please the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that was created, every animal, every tree, every object, every person was created. As the Bible simply says here, for his pleasure. For his pleasure. That means that our purpose for existing is to please God people say all the time i just don't understand why i'm here what's my purpose for existing i'll tell you what it is to please him who created you and someone says yeah but that's that's not what they're asking yes yes it is because then once i get that nailed down and i really understand that he tells me how to do it it is that simple and so how do we please the lord That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Look over at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Every last one of us struggle with pleasing God, don't we? Man, we we struggle with pleasing the Lord. And I know there may be some pious sucker out there that says, yeah, you know, I please the Lord all the time. I, I got it nailed down. I figured it out. Okay. Yeah, you write a book. I'll read it. Not... Hey, man, i am gonna tell you something. We struggle with this thing. I don't care if you're a preacher. I don't care if you sit in the pew. I don't care if you don't even show up in church half the time. It doesn't matter. Everybody's in the same boat. It doesn't matter how educated you are, scripturally speaking. It doesn't matter how much you've worked at it. You're still going to struggle with this pleasing God thing. You say, why is it such a big deal? How's come it so hard? What are you talking about? Well, look what it says here in the the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let's get to the bottom line, where the rubber meets the road. Fear God and keep his commandments. How are you doing on that commandment thing? How you doing? You say, Well, I got some problems. Exactly. That's my point. Hold on, notice what it says. It says, For this is the whole duty of man. You're responsible. I'm responsible to fear God and keep his commandments. Someone said, that's Old Testament. That's right, he threw out all the commands. You don't have to obey God anymore. Oh, you're under, the, you're under grace now. You can just do whatever you want, whenever you want, and nobody cares. You show me that in the New Testament. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid For God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, he says. Now you say, well, wait a second, our our purpose is to please God. Yes, but notice how we please God, by fearing God and keeping his commandments. That is our whole duty, that's our responsibility. If we're going to please God, then we must obey God. If we're going to please God, we must fear God. Someone says, what do you mean? Well, again, to fear God and keep his commandments, well, recognize God as the all-powerful being that he is. I mean, acknowledge his authority in your life. Acknowledge his right to do with you as he pleases. Submit to his will and obey his commands. That pleases God. In John chapter 15, verse 10 through 11, the Bible says, if ye keep my commandments... Ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Listen closely now. Verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. It's an amazing thing that Christ was obedient to the Father. How much more should you and I, the created creatures or beings of God, be obedient to Him? You say, well... There's some things that I don't agree with about the Word of God. There's some commands that I think are just kind of made up. And, and, and under grace, I, don't, I shouldn't have to be faithful to my wife anymore. And, 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 and under grace, I shouldn't have to go to church anymore. And under grace, I shouldn't have to live a clean, holy life, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. I mean, those days are gone. The law's been washed away completely. Yeah, the law may be gone, and you may not have to live under the law. Praise God for that. But my friend, let me ask you something. Do you still think that it's wrong to murder? Of course it is. It's restated over in the book of Romans. Outside of keeping the Sabbath, every one of the Ten Commandments was restated in the New Testament. There's a reason for that. It's so that people like you and I wouldn't one day say, well, therefore, we don't have any moral responsibility to God or humanity because we are under grace. Being under grace does not delete the moral law. Someone says, well, you're a legalist then. No, I'm saved. And let me tell you something. You better start reading your Bible a little bit, friend. If you think somehow that legalism has something to do with standards, you've missed the boat in Galatians. We'll talk about it here. We're getting there. We talked about the other night a little bit, too. But see, listen, the fact is, is that you and I today can have... Joy more abundant. We can have joy, joy that is full, but we got to keep His commandments. That's how you please God. And your whole purpose is to please Him. Now listen, how do we expect to experience joy in our lives if we don't even please the one who created us? Hey, He goes on to tell us we're to be Christ-like in the New Testament. Someone says, yeah, well, see, that Old Testament is going to put you under bondage. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. You got saved, and now you're under grace, so therefore you can do whatever you want. Wait a second. The command is to be Christ-like. Let's go ahead and live up to that standard and see how we live. Do you really think it was harder to live under the law than it is to live a Christ-like life? How much more separated should we be if we are literally God, Christ-like in this world? You think those Ten Commandments put a hurting on Jesus? Do you think he struggled to keep them? Do you think he was having a hard time living? I think in the flesh he struggled just like you and I. He was tempted like you and I. But I'm telling you what, he rose above it and he had victory. May I say today, that's the standard for the New Testament believer. Not to be in moral degradation, not to be living our life like the world lives it, but to live it in a Christ-like fashion. There's no joy if you're living in sin, my friend. Because you're not pleasing Him who created you. You're not fulfilling your God-given purpose of pleasing Him. And you can't please Him if you are not keeping His commandments and fearing Him. In Romans 8, 29, For whom He did foreknow, He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. He said, You're to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's what God has for you and I today. See, when Paul introduced the Galatians to Christ, they rejoiced in the freedom that grace brought them, but it didn't last for long, did it? We noted this again on Wednesday night for a short period, but we noted that false teachers had sought to bring them under the law, that the Judaizers and these legalists, if you would, they turned around and they, they, they said, "You know what, we don't like Paul. We don't like his message." And the truth is is that he's telling these Gentiles that they're as saved as we are, but yet we're keeping the law, and they're not. They're going to have to keep that law if they want to keep what they've got. It's a sad, sad to note that the law that these false teachers demanded that the Gentiles live by was the very law that the Jews themselves could not keep. Do you realize that the law was put into place to prove to us, to, to, to make it clear to us that we could not get to heaven on our own? I mean, if we could in ourselves get to heaven ourselves, if we could deal with our sin on our own, then why did Jesus die to begin with? And you know what? I think that the old saying, misery loves company, starts right there in Galatians. I think that these Judaizers and these people who came to those New Testament believers and they said, listen, oh, I know you think you got saved by grace through faith, and that's all well and good, and Jesus Christ is all that, but let me tell you something, you got to keep our law too. Now that's called legalism. You can't be saved and you can't keep it if you don't keep the law. There's a problem with that, my friend. You don't get, nor do you keep your salvation from the law. Matter of fact, the law is the only thing that proved to you that you needed Christ to begin with. You go ahead and depend on that law, it'll, it, you're going to lose every time. It was never a set of rules or regulations, but a relationship that freed them from the bondage of sin. And that is the setting of which Paul writes this letter to the Galatians at this point now, chapter 4. Note his end game. Turn if you would to Galatians 4.19. We're going to see what his end game is. Look what he wants for them. Again, the Judaizers are pulling them away from the, the grace of God trying to put them back under the law. you got to realize that these, these Galatians were already under bondage in paganism, that they were bound by the paganism, the rules, the rights, and the religion that they once served. But now they're free, free indeed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's trying to tell them, listen, why in the world are you allowing someone to bring you back under bondage again? You were in bondage and you were free and now you're going back into bondage. What are you doing It almost sounds as if maybe Paul's trying to let them know that whether it's bondage of idolatry or whether it's bondage of the law, they might as well be the same thing. Because when it's all said and done, there is only one way to go, and that's Christ himself. Look what he says in Galatians 4.19. Here it is. He says, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Christ be formed in you. Well, that was the end game. He wanted Christ to be formed in them. Christ was the answer. Christ likeness was the goal. Christ like in their attitude, their actions, their outlook. He'd have them have the mind and the heartbeat of Christ. And may I say, that is God's desire for you and I today as well. In John chapter 13, verse 14 and 15, it says, if I then... Your Lord and Master. Understand Jesus Christ, of course, is preparing to go to Calvary, and here he is with his disciples. And we're going to see that he's, he's washed the feet of his disciples. I don't know about you, but I am not a toe man. I don't like them little hairs that grow up there and all that. I'm not one of those guys that wants to... I, listen, you do what you want, but you, you're not going to catch me walking around the grocery store with a, a pair of those... Uh, Flip flops on or something like that, showing off my. Now again, as my grandma would say, she had beautiful feet, but I, I don't know if I've inherited those or not. But my grandma said she had such beautiful feet, they took pictures and put it in a book. But anyway, the fact is, <laughs> she believed it. But anyway, the the fact is is that is that I don't. I'm not a big fan of feet. Okay, that's just me. Okay, I, I'm not. I'm big about that. My my dad joked about toe jam growing up and all kind of stuff, and so for me, feet just aren't the deal. But Jesus Christ is washing the feet of the disciples. Now, I think there's ways to show your humility other than washing someone's feet. I guess for me, that might be the best way I could, but I haven't gotten there yet, (laughs) to my dismay. But nonetheless, Paul would have these Galatians to be Christ-like. And he says in John 13, Jesus speaking, If I then, be your Lord and Master, have washed your feet ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Hold on, verse 15, here's the key. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now again, the whole point is he humbled himself before his disciples and he's saying basically, I want you to humble yourself. If you're gonna be Christ-like, then you have to be willing to humble yourself before others. You know one of the most difficult things to serve the world and serve others and even serve the Lord is that you have to die to self. That's a hard thing to do. See, Christ was a servant. In the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45, it says, And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. See, God would have us serve even as Christ served. We're to give ourselves to God, and we're to give ourselves to others as Christ did. And you know what? You say, well, how do you serve the Lord? Well, if this is a misnomer many times. People misunderstand what serving God is. It does not begin with you doing something for others. It has something to do with you getting in his presence. We can look at Mary and Martha and we can see an example there. Mary hath chosen that, that good part. Martha's out running around trying to serve others and trying to provide and meet the need of the home. And there's nothing wrong with that, mind you. That's important and it's necessary. Everything in its place, in its time, though. And I mean Mary's over there just sitting at the feet of Jesus. She is simply worshiping. May I ask you, who is serving? Martha's definitely serving. But is Mary not serving? Mary's serving too. Service begins at the foot of Jesus Christ. It does not begin... In the public eye. See, as we study the scriptures, as we share the gospel, as we strengthen our faith, we are serving. As we express His love, extend His grace, and exhibit Christ like compassion, we are serving. As we go about then doing good and comforting the weary and helping others, we're serving. And serving pleases the Master. And when we please the Master, we fulfill our God given purpose. You will never experience lasting joy in your life till you find your God-given purpose and fulfill it. And your fulfilling of a God-given purpose starts at the feet of Jesus because truthfully and honestly, biblically and scripturally, you were created for his pleasure. And you can only do that when you obey him and you fear him. And that means being Christ-like. And what did Christ do? He served God first and others. How many of you remember the Christmas classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? You say, what? Yeah. Yeah. Cutting through the thickness of this, right? I mean, Rudolph, Hermie, and Yukon Cornelius. Those three guys, they end up on the island of misfit toys. You remember that? And here's Bob in the box. You remember, he says, he says, You know what my name is? And and Rudolph says, "Uh, let me take a guess. Jack? And he goes, no, Bob. Who wants a Bob in the box? Right? It's coming back to you. Some of you are spiritual enough to have watched it a few times. Oh, these toys, you know what they long for? You know what the toys long for? They long to be under a tree. They long to be in the hands of a child. Oh, they have some minor flaws that make them something less than ideal in the world's eyes. But the only thing that will give them true joy is to fulfill their what? Purpose. And that's to be in the hands of a child. That's to be under a tree. That's to be being used. When we obey God and please the master, we are fulfilling our God-given purpose for existing. And only in fulfilling that purpose can we hope to experience lasting joy. So first of all, we notice our service pleases the master. If you want true lasting joy, then you've got to please him. Number two, our service produces a legacy. It produces a legacy. Turn, if you would, to Philippians 4.1, would you please? We'll move quickly on these last two. I've only got four more pages of notes. No, I'm teasing. Our service produces a legacy. The Apostle Paul, of course, is probably one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. Some would say he is. Outside of Jesus Christ, no one has impacted the Christian faith more than Paul. Notice in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, as he speaks to these beloved people that he so dearly cherished. He says, therefore, my brethren, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Boy, I mean, Paul had invested his life in these saints. He had traveled throughout Asia Minor promoting Christ and sharing the Lord Jesus with everyone he possibly could. The result? The result were converts. The result were churches. The result were changed lives. The result was ministry. The result was pleasing the Lord. Note what Paul calls these Philippians. He says, ye are my joy and what? Crown. My joy and crown. He views them as a reward and a source of joy. Now, I understand that people can let you down. Don't misunderstand that. I've been at this a couple years. I know you can pour your life into someone. I know you can invest in people and they'll let you down, so to speak. They won't follow through with that investment. They, they, you find yourself investing more in them than they're investing in themselves. It's a tragedy. But when the apostle Paul looks at the people at Philippi, he says to them that ye he says listen therefore my brethren dearly beloved I long for my joy and crown you're my joy and crown He's saying man listen you're my reward When I think about all the effort I place in, man, I'm extremely pleased that I can invest in you. Man, I look at you and I say, praise God, it's worth the investment. And then when I look at you, I say, praise God, I'm investing in something worthwhile. I'm investing in others. I'm investing in who Christ would invest in and who he does invest in. 3 John 1, 3-4 says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. Even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You, you Listen, you want to know what lasting joy is? You want to really get a hold of joy? Then you need to start serving. But how do you do that? You serve by producing a legacy. You invest in the lives of others. Now listen, I, I am so grateful and I am so thankful when someone comes to church on a Sunday night when we're having a, uh, 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 some kind of afterglow or some kind of fellowship and they bring the, a, a plate or a dish that is delicious, I am pleased as punch. But my friend, if that is the only means by which you are serving the master, you're missing out on joy. Oh, it's a joy to to make a dish, and it's a joy to see people thrilled and happy to eat of it. But hold on, let me tell you something. I promise you this. It'll be a greater joy to invest in a person, not a plate. Who are you investing in, not what? Who are you investing in? You really want to experience lasting joy in your Christian life and walk, then, my friend, you need to start investing in others because that investment will leave a legacy. It will long surpass your life on earth. It'll go along afterwards. Think about Paul today. We're still talking about him, we're still preaching about him, we're still teaching about him. Why? Because he left a legacy, and he said that legacy was his joy. Who's your legacy? Not what, who. Because in investing in lives and in transforming lives through the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, you can have a part in making a difference both now and in eternity. Paul would soon depart for heaven, but long after, even to this day, the fruit of his efforts remain. What a legacy what a joy people are pain aren't they it's telling the singles today we are living in a culture in a day today that we are breeding a sense of impersonal an impersonal sense today to everything everything is done here here you, you know what? It used to be when it first came out and they first started letting you do your banking at an ATM, I said, that will be one of the downfalls of the church. And someone's like, you're nuts. You're crazy. No, I knew what was going to happen, just like some of you may have known. All of a sudden now, we wouldn't need to go in and see a teller. That means we didn't have to pass a track. That means we didn't have to push ourselves and get in our discomfort zone or out of our comfort zone. Now we have less contact with the world in which Jesus said to reach. And then all of a sudden it stopped just with banking. Pretty soon now we go up to the pump and we never have to go inside. We never have to talk to a live person. Now we can get our groceries if we really want online. We don't even have to see anybody with groceries. We don't have to see a teller. We don't have to see anybody at a, at a cash register. We don't have to talk to anybody filling the aisles looking for something we're seeking. We don't have to go to a Walmart anymore. We don't have to go to any stores. We don't have to have interaction with anybody. And the truth is we're struggling to have interaction with our own families. We'd much rather FaceTime them. We'd much rather type to them and email them instead of face them like this. And there's a problem with that because ultimately you cannot... You cannot impact people the way you ought to, nor can I, without face-to-face. There's a difference. It's just so impersonal. Hey, write books and, and get online and do those things to reach people with the gospel. But I promise you, if you truly want to impact their life and change and transform them for a lifetime and eternity you're going to have to have somebody on the ground making a difference in their life. See, our service produces a legacy, and guess what? That legacy brings great joy to the believer. And finally, our service provides a reward. For the sake of time, just let me read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Again, according to the word of God, our faithful service will yield a reward. And, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to debate it. I'm not going to argue it. I'm not going to discuss it, really. Uh, somebody'd say, Well, you shouldn't be serving God for a reward. I don't know. All I know is that He tells me that that's something that should motivate me. That's what I, I see it right in the script. Why would He mention it if it's not something that should move me? I, I don't know. Maybe you know more than God does. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't want to serve God just for a reward, but I'll tell you this, it's sure nice looking forward to it. Because I don't know about you, but from what I understand about those rewards is that they're going to be received by you and I, and we're going to have the privilege of putting them where they belong. Back to Him. I don't want to go in empty-handed. I don't want to go to God and say, I have nothing to show. Man, it all got burned up. What joy the hope of a future reward brings to the Christian as we go forward in life. Knowing that God is keeping record. Knowing that God cares about us presently. Knowing that God is a God that is intimate and personal. And that he is on our side both now and tomorrow. Unlike the gods of the world, our God cares about the least of us. I mean like it isn't enough that I receive an eternal inheritance. It's not enough that I already have a home in heaven. It's not not enough that he indwells me, that he lives in me, that he gives me full access to his throne room. He now says to me, Mark, I'm going to give you rewards. I'm like, what? Serious? What grace and mercy, what joy that truth brings to me. I mean, we start talking about joy and we've already said it's salvation. You need to be saved. If you haven't been saved, you have to get saved. God wants you to know true joy and lasting joy. Invite Him into your life. He is the source of all joy. And as a believer, you need to surrender your life to Him. And then you need to allow the Spirit to control you. Because in doing so, you will find that your service will bring tremendous joy as well. Boy, those, those, it's all so important, so, so needed. Our service pleases the master. Our service produces a legacy, and our service provides a reward. Boy, if we serve, we can experience lasting joy. But do not serve to get joy, because if that is your motive... You'll miss it. I know it's tricky here. And, and someone says, well, that's crazy. I thought you said if we serve, we'll have joy. But remember, if we're not saved, we don't have the source. If we're not surrendered, we're not in a position to have Him close enough to express the joy. If we don't have the Spirit filling, then we're not going to have the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And guess what we're doing? We're serving in our flesh and in our own strength. And the only thing that does is wear us out. And eventually we'll become very bitter, not only toward those that we serve, but potentially even bitter toward him who created us. May God help us to fulfill our God-given purpose today. Please, God. Please Him by obeying Him and fearing Him. And allow God to use you to invest in another life, to make an impact both now and eternity. And one day, you'll be very glad you did. Father, we come to you.